0: Welcome to the Tone Stone Podcast. I'm Garrett Ryan, and my guest today is Dr. David Breeze. Dr. Breeze, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Pleased to be with you today. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. And uh, Dr. Breeze was kind enough to invite me to his home in Edinburgh, as you can see, to discuss the Roman frontiers, um, his specialty, and a topic on which he's written quite a few books. So I wanted to begin, um, in very broad terms, by asking how different was the Roman conception of a frontier from our modern idea of it?
1: That's a very interesting question because it is very important to try to understand the Roman perspective on life, and uh, it, for me when I'm asked this question, uh, one answer I like to give is we must think in terms of how white men, uh, and it white and they were men mm-hmm. um, in the nineteenth century and late eighteenth century saw the world. It was theirs to take. So most countries in the world had a brush with white empire builders, which has, of course, shaped our world today. So the the Romans had a very similar attitude. Um, They saw themselves as the great state, for want of a better word, uh, and uh, the gift that they had been given by the gods was to rule the world. So um, this is important to understand this. It became very clear under Augustus, the first emperor, um, who in many ways defined the frontiers of the Roman Empire. Uh, But uh, the Romans also saw the frontiers as temporary because the rest of the world was theirs to take when they wanted to. Tacitus remarked um, many years, decades, perhaps, let's say, going on for 100. After the Romans had stopped expanding into Germany, Tacitus said, oh, the conquest of Germany is taking a long time. (laughs) So it was still in his mind, the, the mind of the imperial aristocracy, that they would eventually get round to conquering Germany, but there was no rush about it. <laughs> um, so it, it, the, the, these two aspects, I think, are really important, um, that uh, that the, the Romans saw themselves as, uh, in time, uh, uh, ruling the whole of the world, as they saw it, um, and also they didn't need... Hurry it. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, so our idea of a frontier is kind sort of this, this essential thing, this line in the sand that's there as part of the order of things. Yes. It's more a legacy of imperialism than anything else. Um, a 19th century and 20th century idea that the yes. Romans would have found perhaps, uh, I don't know, a bit, a bit strange, if anything.
1: Well, the other aspect of that is uh, you're quite right, uh, because uh, basically the Romans... Were never dealing with equal states, apart from uh, in the Far East mm-hmm. uh, in, with um, uh, Parthia, which was uh, uh, then came under a new dynasty and became known as Persia. So against Parthia, Persia, um, the Romans were dealing with a state which was more or less equal mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, they uh, and very powerful. Uh, for the rest, they weren't. Uh, they were dealing with uh, kingdoms which they could relatively easily, if they so wished, uh, conquer and absorb into the empire. So it was a, there was no such thing, obviously, as the League of Nations uh, earlier in the 20th century or the United Nations today, uh, which had some sort of, and of course, in the Middle Ages, the popes. Um, mm. So uh, no, no sort of supernatural... Uh, sorry. No sort of supernational mm-hmm. body which you know, the king of Bohemia could um, appeal to if the Romans mm-hmm. uh, right, came right. To, uh, uh, knocking at his door. So um, it was an absolutely different world in that way uh, from modern nation states.
0: Mm-hmm. So the frontiers, um, you know, however defined, developed gradually almost everywhere. And it seems that both um, their establishment, or at least the idea that they were fixed in a certain place, however temporarily, um, and their fortification well, often lasted generations and was often a sort of a gradual monumentalization, we might say, going mm-hmm. from uh, temporary wooden fortifications to things like Hadrian's Wall, in, well, at least in one case. And so can we distinguish phases, I suppose, chronological phases, mm-hmm. empire-wide in the evolution of these defenses?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, we can. Uh, if we we come back to the point that um, under Augustus, he uh, pretty well sorted out the boundaries of the empire, which stayed the boundaries um, with some changes, admittedly, but pretty well stayed the boundaries uh, for the next uh, 300 years more, up to, four, up to 400 years more. Uh, but uh, because at first Augustus... Uh, was creating a, a, a homogeneous empire. So he finished off the conquest of Spain, which had taken a long time. He he uh, he brought the tribes of the Alps under control. He moved the frontier up to the Danube and so on. So after his death, there was a, 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 a period when uh, everybody was just really content to sit back and accept things as they were, because it had taken a lot of effort to get that far. Uh, But the longer that lasted, it would appear the more the problems developed. So Augustus had left the empire with big army groups in what is now um, Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, uh, ready to move forward and conquer the rest of Germany. Uh, But these required feeding, Mm-hmm. And it became easier, it would appear to spread troops out along a line, so you had more local supplies. so that's I think the first stage, and that comes under Claudius, so we're looking at about fifty a d you know um, that's two generations after the death of Augustus. So we have that um and then we we have the introduction of smaller enclosures to fill the gaps between forts that's already started under tiberius uh, so augustus made big change starting spreading out along the line but still no linear barrier and it's really uh Hadrian is regarded as the big builder of linear barriers mm. but it actually started under his predecessor mm. who started um by uh attempting to uh, fill the gap between the upper waters of the Danube and then the Rhine, and there's a bank and ditch which you built across there. And that seems to be the earliest type of linear barrier which moves on to the frontiers, which Hadrian excelled at mm-hmm. producing. And th- that uh, pattern then moved on to a... Um, a peak, really, under a, Anto- uh, Antoninus Pius, who was a successor of Hadrian. And at that point, it's as if the pendulum was swung to its furthest extreme and concentrating on a line. When the army, just sticking with Britain, moves back to Hadrian's Wall, doesn't actually adopt the pattern on the Antonine Wall, but moves a little back in, in time, as it were, hmm. in concept, mm-hmm. uh, by... Uh, uh, putting more units in um, the same number of forts as before. So says for example, seem to have as many as three units based huh. there. So you're moving almost back, uh, though with a major difference, but almost back to the Augustan concept of big army groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, it... It, it it stays pretty well like that throughout the empire until you get major changes um, in the third century. So from two three five to two eight four, lot of invasions, lot of civil war. Um, the world that has turned upside down. And when Diocletian takes over, he makes new arrangements, uh, which a lot. Uh, uh, these are about the administration of the empire, smaller provinces, smaller army uh, commands, and mobile field armies. Mm-hmm. So that's a big change. Uh, it's always the tension um, between defending a line, which is all very well and good, um, mm-hmm. until it's broken through, mm-hmm. and then you've got no backup right, uh, to fight off. It's the same with, um, in many ways, with the Atlantic Wall built by the Mm. Germans. Um, Once you break through that, um, uh, you you need, as the Romans did, a backup uh, uh, force. Um, And that's why uh, field armies gradually came into uh, existence in in the 4th century, Rushing around, mm-hmm. uh, fighting threats to the frontier and trying to plug gaps. Mm-hmm. Hmm.
0: So the, the evolution is from a concentration of you know, army groups on front and frontiers to increasingly dispersed uh, deployments along yes. linear frontier, and then eventually, right, having a, a reserve force of sorts, yes. a field army behind those yes. linear boundaries. Yes, um, which sounds very logical, you know, from a three hundred years perspective. Yeah. I'm sure it was very rather frenzied yes. the you know, time of. Yeah. So, thinking about the actual um, defenses themselves in the palisades yeah. and forts, um, yes. h- how standardized were the defenses, these forts, these fortlets, these walls appearing all yes. over the empire?
1: Yes. It, it, that's an interesting take again on the Roman world. Uh, the generalities are very similar. Um, and by that, I mean, uh, we're going to build a linear barrier. Um, that That's a concept which comes into being, starts just before Hadrian. Um, Hadrian builds Hadrian's Wall in Britain. He creates a linear barrier in Germany. Um, the, there's something happening in North Africa, which we know rather less about. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are one or two other linear barriers, such as in modern Romania. Uh, so, yeah, but everyone is different. <laughs> of course. Um and the question is, and it's still a really interesting and important question, is who actually is making this decision? Mm-hmm. I mean, I find decision level in the Roman Empire quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's obviously Hadrian saying, right, okay, we're going to have a frontier, a barrier. Um, but what's his influence in it? I mean, why is Hadrian's war so different from mm-hmm. others? Um, uh, and how much power over the decisions of location come down to the governor or the general on the spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, um, I think this is really very, very interesting. Uh, you can follow it on Hader's Wall quite nicely, because um, when they came to divide up the work on the wall, it was divided between three legions, and each legion clearly was told, "Right, at every mile you're going to have a little fort, and in between you're going to have a turret, two mm-hmm. turrets." Uh, but when it came to building them, they built each, each legion built in a different style, sure. so you can see the decision-making right, process right. there very clearly. But um, the the empire empress still had the uh, liked to have great control over what's happening. Uh, under Claudius, uh, a very distinguished general, Corbulo was operating north of the Rhine um, and was told to pull back by Claudius. So the the individual governors realised there was a limit to their power, and you see this very clearly at a most extreme level with Pliny, the younger, uh, the, the, the nephew of the Pliny the Elder who was killed at Vesuvius. Mm-hmm. Pliny the Younger is governor of a province in what is now Turkey. And his letters, or oh, some of them survive, and he's always writing even about the smallest things <laughs> to Trajan. Mm-hmm. And you can't, I mean, you can't quite work out, because this is a unique series of letters, is this because um, he's Pliny, Um, And and a sycophant Mm -hmm. Uh, um, And it could be Because eventually Trajan more or less Says oh get on with it yourself (laughs) Take your own decisions Um, Or or are we seeing um, Normal life in the Roman Empire Mm -hmm. And When we have so little evidence It's difficult to judge But the Pliny's letters do indicate A continuing high level of control By the Emperor And we've just got to guess At um, how how this plays out on the ground
0: mm-hmm. yeah I remember reading some of the letters um, from my own research in a different light you, you do you can see Trajan almost you know like going like this you know kind of a face plant or yes. you know it's like a secretary on it's like oh it's <laughs> yes. plenty again yeah you know, there's another escaped slave in Nicomedia. um yes. And actually that was one of my questions about how how important initiative was I mean it was just hard to distinguish you know yes. who was making these big decisions yes um yeah. I'll go ahead sorry
1: well, well, well one of, uh, another example, if I may, in in, um, mm-hmm. in North Britain, um, uh, the, the the history of Roman Britain is quite interesting insofar as uh, Caesar came, mm-hmm. obviously fifty five fifty four, goes quiet. Um, the The Roman rulers probably had the idea: well, you know, uh, they've uh, uh, succumbed to us. We'll just leave <laughs> yeah. it at that. We, we, rule, we rule Britain because the kings in the south had mm. accepted that. Um, and then Claudius comes along, and Claudius wants a triumph. I mean, the only reason for invading Britain is Claudius needed a triumph, because he he come to the throne in really inauspicious circumstances, pulled from behind a curtain, made emperor, um, and had no military experience. So the Roman Empire is basically military dictatorship. Uh, it's a simplified way of looking at it, but uh, there's a lot of truth in that, so he looks around well, you know, okay, where are you going to go to get a triumph you can be sure of? There's nothing in North Africa, mm. um the Middle East, you're up against Parthia, bit tricky that <laughs> Europe is vast. Would you really want to get stuck in no, central right, Europe right. as you know has mm. his brother Germanicus had right right. So he goes to Britain. Um, I mean, okay, it's across the ocean, but they can build ships. Um, Antoninus Pius had exactly the same problem. He chose Britain as well uh, for the same reason. So Claudius comes along. Once uh, once he's got what he wanted, his triumph, his triumphal arch in Rome, his new coinage, loses interest. Um, And Nero, his successor, loses interest. Once he's out of the way, the new emperor, Vespasian, clearly decides he's going to get on with it. He'd been in the army for invasion in forty-three. Now with 20-odd years on. He, he, he tells his generals, get on with this. Um, we don't know the specific instructions, obviously, except that um, one of his governors was Agricola. Mm-hmm. And we know a lot about his career. So Agricola starts off, um, he... he tidies up loose ends, and then he heads for the north. He gets to where we think is the Tay. He then falls back, uh, fortifies in some way the frontier line across the fourth Clyde, we are told, and then everything stops. And the stop coincides with the death of the emperor.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: He faffs around for two years, and then the new emperor dies, and his successor went forward in... Germany, with new conquests, and uh, that coincides with Agricola getting on and marching up again into Scotland. So what what we see here, it would appear is absolute control by Mm -hmm. the emperor, deciding what to do, uh, what his governors should do, Mm -hmm. and exactly the same time, we have a really good example again uh, when uh, Nero successor Uh, was killed Uh, Vespasian who was leading the Roman army against the Jewish revolt stopped what he was doing this was an internal rebellion it wasn't Mm -hmm. an army of invasion outside Mm -hmm. it's an internal rebellion he stops what he's doing and sends to the new emperor and says what do you want me to do next (laughs) and it's about individual power isn't it Mm -hmm. The, the power is coming from the emperor once the emperor's dead or killed or gone mm-hmm. um, in some way they knew the, the governor the governor has to get new instructions right from that's the new emperor
0: I my, my coolest heels for a while consolidate that's fascinating Think about how you know we have this on one side the notion as you said that you know expansion is what the Romans do you know to conquer the world you know, and mm-hmm. rule it you know Virgilian style yeah but at the same time there's this very um, Practical outlook for the emperors that, hey, okay, Britain is a nice, manageable conquest, yes. all right? Take up a bite sized chunk, yes. a triumph sized chunk, yes. um, and that's all we need. Um, and so in a way that the empire we have is the accident of the individual ambitions of the various emperors, yes. you know, taking a bit, stopping, taking a bit, stopping, yes. and perhaps underlying that some sort of environmental limits and practical yes. considerations that yes. like, we probably shouldn't go too much further this way or that way. Yes. Um, but it is fascinating about it. There's nothing natural about the frontiers that sort of happen for all these political decisions, mm. um, which are taken for all these different actors for various, mm. you know, individual reasons. Um, you mentioned earlier how the evolution of the frontiers is towards um, field armies, and you know mm-hmm. the, the limitane, you know the, the border, yeah. the men on the border, and there, there was a vogue for a while about this idea of defense in depth, you know, a lute yes. and all of that. Yes. Um, does this view, in your opinion, have any historical basis in terms of grand strategy of a defense in depth?
1: Yes, uh, I, I think it is difficult to justify. Uh, the, uh, the, the Roman Empire, when it came to frontiers, did respond to the local conditions. Uh, so at, at one end of way of looking at it is um, in Central Europe, in the very early days of frontiers, you did not get forts where there was no people or whether the landscape was so difficult to Mm -hmm. cross. Mm -hmm. And it's the same uh, in the the frontier on the Euphrates and Turkey. So so there's a uh, a response to local conditions. And I think this is important for us all to bear in mind. the Romans were daft. And, you know, there, there's no point put, put putting a fort down, uh, perhaps, when there were no people living there. Though having said that, sometimes you needed a fort where there were no people living there if it was on the potential invasion route. Mm. So one's got to be careful with rules, as, as sure. it were. Uh, but across most of Europe, um, um, and indeed North Africa, the frontier line was a line a single line there was for most of the period of the empire there was no backup britain was different
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, the province of Dacia in modern transylvania in romania it was different again in britain um there were problems in the second century with invasions or threats and so a large army was needed um and britain was very narrow so you couldn't fit the whole army on the frontier line so it backed up behind mm-hmm. Um I don't think the natives are restless. i mean there's absolutely no evidence for uh, warfare in northern England mm-hmm. um after the the conquest uh and there's no no evidence in the form of tight network of military installations to suggest that so that what what one might interpret as defense in depth is merely a re- reflection of the geography ah. in dacia uh again the in this case uh, the forts tend to be back from the frontier line because the frontier line was uh the the mountains which surround asia especially the carpathians and the whole uh, the mountains might have different names today, Musheni Mountains and so on. But essentially, they're all the Carpathians and they surrounded Asia. So the troops are not perched on top of the hill. <laughs> they're down in the valleys behind. Mm-hmm. And then they could move forward wherever they needed if there was an invasion coming. Mm-hmm. So that, again, might be regarded as defensive depth. But for me, it's responding to the geography of the area.
0: So you know, trying to draw these essential rules from individual cases is kind of a misleading strategy for this. I, I, I think yeah. so.
1: I mean, it, yes, in later periods, you do get defended barracks inside. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- this is um, um, uh, to perhaps ignore wider aspects of human nature. So if I can give you an example, which I'd really, very much like. Um, uh, Towards the end of the Second World War, my father's ship uh, tied up um, at a Greek island in the evening and they offloaded uh, the jeep, put it on the dock. Next morning, it had gone and they searched the island and they never found anything, any part of it. It had presumably been dismantled, hidden away. Mm We tend to forget pilfering. You know, Mm -hmm. if you're an army and you've got lots of food, um, you might want to have that very well protected. Mm. Um, So uh, a lot of food would not be grown on the frontier. It would be grown, um, like in in, in southern England, transported, as we know happened, uh, to the Rhineland garrisons. So on route, you might want to have defended ah, right. granaries mm-hmm. and that's another um, issue I think in, in looking at uh, was a really defense in depth um, and again it, it from what we hear we, we've got some sites uh, but I, I, there's nothing in the way really of a coherent pattern of mm-hmm. Having, as we've already touched on, uh, an army group like Augustus had, or the mobile armies that came along later, base in a particular uh, place uh, where it could move out in different directions uh, in, in, in the face of an invasion.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, I think that for many of us are familiar with, you know, one little chunk of the frontiers. We tend to kind of extrapolate from that how all frontiers might work. And that's to our peril. Um, So moving on though to one particular frontier that uh, you know very well, Mm. um, to Hadrian's Wall. Yes. Um, So listeners might not be familiar, could you briefly summarize the wall? The wall. Mm -hmm. Hadrian's Wall is
1: a complicated frontier. Uh, It uh, consisted as initially conceived and started as a linear barrier which ran from the River Tyne at Wall's End, just downstream from uh, Newcastle-upon-Tyne to Bowness and Solway, which is downstream on the west side of the country at Carlisle. It was not built of one material alone. The western uh, part of it was built of turf. The eastern uh, m- miles... Um, 50 miles out of 80, Roman miles, was built of stone and enormously wide. Uh, the foundations are 10 feet wide. No other front is like that. And that's something we can come back to. Um, along this line, uh, there was a defended gate at every mile called a Mile Castle and in between two towers. And before this, uh, Linear Barrier was a big ditch. So um, that was what was planned um, and uh, it's interesting just to look at this scheme because um, it, was open, it was open in a way. There mm. were gates. I mean the one of the big shifts in understanding Hayden's wall occurred in the middle of the 19th century when a gate was found through the wall a Marcus gate up till mm-hmm. then it was sort of it was an impermeable barrier mm-hmm. and then suddenly a gate a gate was found and then of course more uh, and the interpretation changed overnight it was realized you could communicate with the people beyond mm-hmm. you, either in warfare or trade or diplomacy so having gates through the wall mm-hmm. at every mile Tells us that this was uh, an open frontier, in, insofar as you could pass through it, mm-hmm. the towers are interestingly placed. They are about the same dis- the distance apart um, as uh, for when you can see somebody approaching is friend or foe, mm-hmm. uh, whether they you know, how they were dressed, uh, mm-hmm. what weapons they, they carried, weapons, and so on. So they're very carefully placed um, in, in, in that to maintain observation to the north. So this was the original plan. Um, some of it was, uh, was reasonably well advanced. We don't know how much. Uh, when there was an absolutely major change uh this resulted in first of all the addition of new forts to the wall in the original scheme there were forts behind the wall and we presume we can only presume that the soldiers in these new forts behind the wall provided the soldiers to man the wall
0: mm-hmm.
1: then uh the new idea was to put forts not just on the wall line, but actually astride the wall. This doesn't occur anywhere else. And it, it, it sort of shouts at us, actually, we are going to interfere in the north. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, the fact that you have the forts astride right, right. the wall. Um, and when we count up the number of forts, or rather the number of regiments that had to move, to man these forts it's something like uh, 20 21 units out of the whole uh, lower grade troops which is 50 to 55 strong mm-hmm. in the province you know two fifths of the armies on the move abandoning forts in wales the north of england to move up uh, uh, and sit astride the wall mm-hmm. three forts to the north extra forts in the hinterland it, it, it's an absolutely fascinating, changing attitude from this passive original idea mm-hmm. to, if you like, an offensive mm-hmm. uh, framework. So we have to ask ourselves, how's this happening? Why is this happening? So what actually happened in 122? We know this because it's in the ancient literature. Uh, that Hadrian came to Britain, mm-hmm. and I my guess is, and this is now into historical fiction, <laughs> right? That what had happened is that Hadrian, clearly from the evidence we've got, as soon as he becomes emperor, decides he's not going for wars of conquest like his predecessor Trajan. Trajan dealt with two old sores. Uh, one was uh, the kingdom of Dacia in modern Romania. Um, and it, it took him two wars to defeat them. Mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting. It was a struggle. Uh, and then he turned his attention to Parthia and he was there two to three years. And then the whole, the whole setup collapsed. So we know that Hadrian came to Britain in 122. We're told this um, in in ancient literature. Uh, And uh, he he came um, uh, from the the Middle East. He became emperor in 117 uh, when his uncle Trajan died. Uh, Trajan, Hadrian, could have observed because he fought in Trajan's army and was followed an aristocratic career as an army officer, governor of provinces. So uh, when, when Trajan died, Hadrian had a lot of experience and he must have thought seriously about the situation he inherited. Trajan had set out to conquer Dacia, modern Romania. It took him two goes to do that. He then moved to Parthia. He might have sacked the capital of Parthia, but he didn't subdue the country as a whole. And it came out in revolt, and revolts within the empire followed, in Alexandria and Sarinaca in particular. So Hadrian inherited a, a, a serious problem which he had to deal with. And from that, I think that related to two decisions which were taken. And the first one was to build barriers like Haydons Wall and the Palisade in Germany. The other is to ask ourselves uh, why. I mean, one could say, okay, he stopped, he, he could see the co- uh, cost in manpower, he could see didn't actually get them very far uh, in, in extending the empire. It had become too expensive. And therefore, there may well have been a manpower shortage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there are different days from when they, the Romans could lose thousands of soldiers in battle
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the late empire, uh, late Republic. Uh, and uh, I think there's a possibility that one of the reasons why we have all these many barriers is as Hadrian decided he was against any more expansion and one of the reasons why he was against expansion was it had become too expensive in manpower mm-hmm. so uh, he, he uh, f- five, uh, four or five years into his reign he comes to Britain uh, and uh, he We are told, by a much later biographer, 200 years odd later, that he was the first to build a wall in Britain from sea to sea, 80 miles long. Okay, that's fine. Um, But of course, the biographers looking back Mm -hmm. from 250 years Mm
0: -hmm. uh,
1: in the future, uh, there's no details in this other than that. Um, En route from Antioch, in 117 to Rome, Hadrian came um, across Turkey to the Danube and uh, it seems highly likely that he met the governor of the (laughs) province there, the mouth of the Danube, and appointed him to be governor of Britain. We know his name, it's Pompeius Falco. We know he became governor of Britain um, and we know that he retired from that post in July or shortly before July 122 shortly before the visit of Hadrian
0: Mm
1: -hmm. so uh, this is historical fiction (laughs) but Hadrian's already got, because it starts straight away in his head, the idea that he's not going to expand the empire. He's going to hold what he has. He's going to protect it. Mm-hmm. So he's going to build frontiers. And it, uh, yeah, you could imagine a conversation now. <laughs> All right. You're Pompeius Falco. I'm Hadrian. Mm-hmm. Um, right, uh, my, uh, chap. Um, I, I want to build, uh, Have uh, seal off North Britain. I want a wall <laughs> to be built across the north. You say... Oh, oh, that's uh, interesting. Uh, what kind of, what do you mean, what kind of uh, yeah. wall? <laughs> yeah,
0: well, What's was, in your mind? Exactly. Uh, right, well, yeah. first I say, yes, sir. Ah, now no, that's, that, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, well, of course you say, yes, sir. Uh, yeah,
0: right, right, yeah.
1: Uh, what kind of wall? Well, says Hadrian, that's an interesting question. Um, what wall should we have? Now, Hadrian's a great um, philhellene. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only the Greek east of the empire that actually has city walls. There are hardly any in the West. Hmm. So, if you're thinking, what kind of wall do you want? Mm. Well, like round Athens, we do. You <laughs> see, um, uh, that, says Falco. That's fine. Yeah, good I idea. Right, right, yes. Yeah, um, and it may be as simple as that. You know, Hadrian has an idea. He's quizzed about it. Um, he comes up with something which is. Uh, so unusual, mm-hmm. um, you know, a 10-foot broad wall in stone for 50 miles. Um, the rest of the wall is turf, which is the usual material of construction in the first phase mm-hmm. of fort building and frontier building, uh, or just earth and bank, mm-hmm. or a fence, as in Germany. And when the German fence was replaced, it was by a two-foot wide wall. So ten feet, gosh. Um, so that's, that's starts, and there's a section of Hadrian's Wall where it's it's more ornate. Um, it, 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 it's clearly very early because they later tweak the design, and it's very possible that when the Hadrian's governor mm-hmm. had this built for Hadrian's visit.
0: Mm.
1: Do you like this, sir? Is this what you want? <laughs> uh it's not what he wanted. Once he was on the spot, I, I think it's highly possible that Hadrian just looked at the situation and said, No, th- this isn't going to work in the way I want. So what we're going to do is we're going to be going to put forts on the wall. I misread the situation, he says in his own mind, possibly <laughs> in his own mind. Um the, the Britons had, according to um, the biographer of Hadrian uh, were being troublesome. Britain couldn't be kept under control at the the beginning of Hadrian's reign. We've got to be very careful here um, because at the beginning of every reign throughout the second century, Britain couldn't be held under control (laughs) one way or the other. It's a bit like one political party still blaming the last Mm, 10 years off of the economical situation, Mm, you see. It it might be a literary uh, tropos. It might be reality, and it, we on the, don't have much evidence to help us out. But it does seem very, you know, we we should accept, uh, Britain couldn't be held under control. And once Hadrian's on the spot, this becomes more forceful to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that, legor- that legionary reinforcements are brought in, which says a lot. You know, um, it means that there's been uh damage to the legion mm-hmm. we assume rather than they're just below strength um there are other issues a soldier centurion is killed in battle but we don't know quite when um so there is clearly trouble on the frontier he gets to the spot he decides he wants it done differently um and that's when he it becomes a more offensive forward looking um, outward looking frontier. And then there are a whole series of knock on effects. Mm-hmm. The The width of the wall is reduced. Um, was there going to be a war walk along the top originally? Mm-hmm. Were soldiers going to fight from the top? Well, a hundred years ago, RG Collingwood argued absolutely not. So the Roman army was an offensive army. It wasn't equipped to fight defensively. Not everybody had, um, bows and arrows, uh, Sodas only had two spears. Mm-hmm. You're sitting on top of the wall, you throw your two spears. <laughs> yeah, what do right. you do then? <laughs> okay. um, he regarded Hadrian's Wall as just the top of it, a century walk. But it may be that it was planned like Athens with a century walk and a wall walk. But once you narrow it, you can't achieve that. Mm-hmm. And if you look at every reconstruction of Hadrian's Wall, everyone, apart from one I did or had done last year, has a wall wall. but think of it: you're at least twelve foot, probably fifteen foot above the ground, on a snowy Northumberland mm-hmm. winter, patrolling with a, par- with a parapet in front. You would want one behind, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, right. So you didn't fall off. Yeah. And, and when you've got a, you know, you reduce the thickness of the wall from actually nine foot six in, uh, in uh, to seven foot six. Um, and then you've got a foot off at of the big front and back. You're down to five foot six. Mm-hmm. You haven't got space to throw a spear. You've hardly got space to maneuver a shield. Mm. Um, and the wall in certain places is even narrower than that. So I think if they even had planned at the very beginning to have a war walk, it just went out once they narrowed mm-hmm. the wall. And there are other uh, smaller Changes. And I think as a result of this, um, actually, Hadrian's War wasn't finished when Hadrian himself died.
0: Mm -hmm. That's fascinating that uh, both the the amount of dispute there still is over the details of the wall, of the walk, yeah. and how apparently profound the personal influence of Hadrian was on this border, that, you know, that he says, you know, the wall looks like this, and the governor says, you know, salutes and says, all right, you know, yes. let's do that. And then right can be changed profoundly when he shows up in yes. 122, yes. and says, no, we move the forts forward a bit, and, yes. you know, they adjust accordingly. Yes. But as you said, by the time Hadrian dies um, in 138, um, the wall is not apparently done. Mm. It is in fact abandoned um, Mm. almost immediately Mm. in favor of another wall, what we call the Antonine Wall, which is not that far from here in Edinburgh. And so you mentioned before how this is apparently Antoninus' pious, wanting a nice, manageable triumph, you know, advancing yes. the frontiers a bit. Yeah. Um, but the new wall, the Antonine Wall, is quite different from Hadrian's Wall in a lot of respects. Yes. Uh, could you tell us about this? Yes.
1: It, it, it's interesting in many ways. The Antonine Wall goes back to the normal method mm-hmm. of building. So it's built of turf, um, it's built, and the turf is built on a stone base. Now, recent work by colleagues in Edinburgh University um, have demonstrated that the Antonine Wall was very carefully constructed. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of discussion as to whether it was a temporary measure, but uh, in order to build the Antonine Wall on top of this stone base, uh, they collected turfs from two different places. Mm. One was to create a, a turb, turf curb, edge Uh, To the wall the other was different turf uh, to build the wall itself Hmm. and the internal turfs are placed not parallel to the rampart base, but diagonally And that creates a much more stable Mm -hmm. and cohesive structure Hmm. So and it takes more effort Mm -hmm. So we're not looking at a temporary fix Right. This was a and that's that I think this new information and I think very interesting Uh, and and it demonstrates the the care that the army went about building the wall. Uh, So first of all, it's turf. Uh, Then the forts are closer together than on Hadrian's Wall. On Hadrian's Wall, the forts are about um, uh, seven and a half miles apart, uh, and that's roughly a day's march apart, mm-hmm. half, I beg your pardon, that's roughly half a day's march apart. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense in that. On the Antonine Wall, that's how they started building, whether that's all they intended so to build initially is still open for debate, but they moved to a much closer density of forts, So they're only two miles or just over two miles apart in the final scheme, so much closer uh, fort uh, density with still castles, fortlets, guarding other gates through the wall. Uh, So it it ended up with um, crucially different form of construction, material construction, and a much uh, heavier weight of troops, uh, in these forts along the mm. the line of the wall,
0: hmm. and how much of that is just the, the narrower uh, isthmus that it's spanning? You think uh, the the narrowness of the isthmus is
1: interesting. It's roughly half the length of. Hadrian's Wall, so it's a much more natural place to build it, and this comes back to Hadrian. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hadrian could have chose that line for himself. Right. He's stopping. He's not going to conquer the Highlands of Scotland, mm-hmm. but if he wanted it to be uh, 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 a, a tighter frontier, as mm-hmm. it were, he could have moved up to the shorter one. But he not chose not to. It, it's an interesting reflection of his mm-hmm. conservatism. Right. He he solidified the position on the existing line. Whereas Antoninus Pius moved forward, I think because he needed a triumph, uh, and that's supported by the fact that he only took uh, the title conqueror, imperator, as emperor for that campaign in spite of fighting on other frontiers. Mm -hmm. Serious warfare in North Africa didn't take any any appropriate uh, 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 title for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... um, when we look at the, the the strength of troops on the Antonine Wall compared to with the Hadrian's Wall, it, it it's in effect double. I mean, mm-hmm. it's the same number of troops, roughly, on the Antonine Wall. It is in Hadrian's War. so it's roughly mm-hmm. in effect um,
0: double. Wow. Um You know, of course, after all this effort, this gargantuan effort, um, that wall is itself abandoned. Yes, um, almost as soon as it's done, even before it's totally <laughs> yes. finished. Yes. Um, and why is this they decide to abandon the new frontier? So quickly?
1: This is, again, um, it's a difficult question. Uh, the, I think we have to bear in mind um, that um, uh, def- defensive actions, let's say, protective mm-hmm. actions changed. They change even today. Uh, in, in, you know, Since um, uh, I was born right at the end of the Second World War, and since then, Britain has had various defensive um, uh, um, weapons. So in the 1950s, we had built a rocket range um, in the north of England. We had different planes like F-111s and, uh, and, and so on. We've changed the shape of the army. We've looked at carrier, uh, aircraft carriers and so on. So uh, today uh how we approach uh, the defense of our country and allies is always on the move mm-hmm. changing so um if we translate that back in we perhaps can accept that the romans could change their minds as well so um but why why uh the great problem for us is we're often told why the romans did Conquered a territory Mm. might not have been altogether the truth Um, We occasionally have two different views My favorite is one of Caesars battles where we have two different descriptions and they don't tally Hmm. Uh, So we've always got to be careful with our sources, but uh, We've never told why the Romans gave up any territory So we have to guess And uh, there are different views. The late Tony Burley uh, suggested that one reason might have been that the uh, under the emperor, the most senior officer, the Praetorian Prefect, uh, I can't remember that he gave up office or died um, late on in the reign of Antoninus Pius. Um, So uh, and uh, they, as a result. uh, New brooms Mm. acted as new
0: brooms (laughs) and
1: decided, well, we don't need the Antonine Wall any longer. Mm -hmm. Uh, It served its purpose. Um, But at the time the Antonine Wall is abandoned, uh, there are serious actions elsewhere in the empire. Um, There's problems in Germany. We don't quite understand them, but we have recruit, uh, we have soldiers from three legions in Britain Mm. serving in Germany at this time. So the army is denuded a little bit in mm-hmm. the way of its legions, which are the real backbone. Uh, we also now know, which is again new evidence, that there were at least two auxiliary units, you know, second grade troops serving in the wars in North Africa in the 150s. And this war seems to drag on. And it pulled in troops from across the northern frontier in Europe. Mm. And we now know in Britain, including one unit from the Antonin War. Really. Mm -hmm. So the Roman army in Britain is weakened um, by wars elsewhere. And it may simply be that at that point it was decided um, okay, we're overstretched. We're going to give up the Antonine War and move back to Hades all.
0: And I can't really do better than that. Well, that's in itself very interesting, you know, both showing the limits of our own knowledge and how a war yes. a thousand miles away could draw people down from the, this wall into these other, other frontiers. Yes. You know, the, the perils of a world empire, I suppose. Yes, yes. So they ask um, the big question, um, so whether it's Antonine, the Antonine Wall or Hadrian's Wall, um, what is the ultimate purpose of these walls? Is it, you know, say so that there's, there's gates, which is so interesting.
1: Yes. Well... A few years ago, I wrote a paper, um, and I offered, uh, going on for 20 reasons which <laughs> archaeologists and ancient historians had given for the purpose of Roman frontiers, mm-hmm. uh, some of which one might be easily rule out. Um, I'm not altogether convinced that they were displacement exercises. <laughs> um y- y- you don't want soldiers with nothing to do. They become restless and mutinous and uh, that's not a good thing. Uh, One, uh, and our ideas change over time. We live in a world today, which is trying to control access to its territory. We see it in cross Atlantic, Uh, we see it in Europe. We see it even within the EU uh, countries building uh, barriers to mm-hmm. movement of people. And the Romans liked to control access to their territory. So um, in the years shortly before Wall was built, we have two very nice and helpful references. They both relate to what is now Germany, and one of them is based on Cologne. And the tribe which lived beyond Cologne complained that they were only allowed to go into Cologne to trade if they went in unarmed under military escort, entering at places stipulated by the Romans and traveling mm-hmm. to markets stipulated by the Romans. Another is a bit further along, Uh, where uh, it's a very similar complaint a bit further east of a tribe uh, complaining in in, in the same way. So we can see in what is today Germany, Western Europe, uh, that there are two instances in in Roman literature where people living beyond the frontier had to follow Roman regulations in order to enter the empire. Mm -hmm. The second example... uh, is um, in the Eastern Empire, and a little later, um, two, two generations or so later, in the late 170s and 180. And there'd been a serious fighting across the um, in, in, um, in Central Europe. And as a result of this, uh, there were treaties signed in the late 70s, uh, 170s. And first of all, the Romans said, Okay, um uh, you are the, the 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 people of the states beyond the Danube, beyond the empire couldn't come to within ten states of the bank of the Danube, mm-hmm. but that didn't work. so a year or two later, there was another treaty, okay, five <laughs> states you've got to keep five states away, mm-hmm. and then the final treaty says, okay. We'll let you come up to the <laughs> bank of the Danube, but you can't come onto the island. <laughs> uh, this is fascinating uh-huh. in, in, in two ways. It, 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 we, we see that Rome is trying to control mm-hmm. what's actually happening immediately on their border. Mm-hmm. And the second aspect is they're not achieving that. <laughs> yeah, right, yes. uh-huh. um, and, and then the detail is interesting. Okay, you can come in, but we don't You come, want to come in. We don't trust you. Mm-hmm. You might be masquerading and actually be spies. Mm-hmm. So this is fascinating. Two examples. Now, for me, I like a third example of anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, one, one uh, uh, action is a... Uh, is, is just uh, a happenstance, two is a coincidence, three is a fact. Uh-huh. So I need three. Mm-hmm. And the, my third example will be Eastern Frontier, the desert uh, a region of uh, Egypt. Mm-hmm. And um, there were a lot of roads uh, crossing the desert from forts like Berenike on the Red Sea, where they're bringing in... Um, uh, high-quality luxury goods from the East. And the Romans mm, could see this was actually a balance of payments problem, but <laughs> right. it, 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 these were luxury goods. And and there were roads which were protected by uh, f- small forts right the way across the desert, coming to the Nile, usually at Koptos. Mm-hmm. And at Koptos... We have an inscription which tells you what civilian travellers across the desert had to pay as a fee, and presumably in return for that, they got protection by mm-hmm. Roman soldiers. What we also have written on pieces of the pottery are passports, permits to pass, which might say, I'm making this up. Opius Sabinus, in charge of the fort at Berenike, gives permission to, to Hermogenes and his wife and two children and a donkey uh, to pass to the next fort um, at uh, uh, Dionysus, Mm -hmm. where he must hand this uh, to the man in charge, Julius Sabinus. Mm -hmm. Now, this is really tight control, isn't it? My picture, my mind's picture, is that the Romans wanted to control access to their territory and within the frontier zone movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, this comes to a head in the late 4th century when the Emperor Valentinian was approached by groups of what they call barbarians from beyond the frontier, wanted to come and enter and live in, settle in the Roman Empire. And he got so cross uh, that he actually had a seizure and died. <laughs> but it, it was, uh, oh my gosh, these... People, they want to come and settle in my empire. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was about control again. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think when we're looking at the empire and and we're looking at the gates through it, um, in part we're looking at uh, regulation. Mm -hmm. Having said that, um, there's a lot of new thought um, coming into play, uh, which is looking at the structure of frontiers um, and uh, using evidence again from a variety of parts of the empire, including North Africa, from modern Libya, uh, where there's um, uh, one of these inscriptions talking about the tall towers of the f- fort wall, mm-hmm. that uh, forts and surviving at Regensburg, for example, in Germany, are built to impress, intimidate the people outside the empire. They're symbolic of the strength of Rome, mm-hmm. um, and uh, this is simply another way of looking at, at frontiers and what they're trying to uh, to achieve, which is two co- sides of the same coin, isn't it? Sure. We're mm-hmm. in charge.
0: Mm-hmm. Huh. So it is, right, both a statement of power and a practical way of controlling both the flow of people through and, and customs, of charging customs duties yes, yes. if need be. Maybe, mm-hmm. yes. yeah, And least in some places. Yeah. and so Hadrian's Wall um, is sort of a fusion of these things. It has mm. these gates which control motion yes. or movement through. Um, it is impressive. You know, yes. that there's this you know monumental. And I read somewhere that they they think it may have been stuccoed and painted. If you know, that's, that's true, yeah,
1: it, it, we, we're not quite sure. Mm-hmm. Um, there is there are um, evidence in the in the form of documents from the Eastern Empire mm-hmm. of painting or mm-hmm. uh, uh, mortaring the outside the right, right. walls. Um, and you're right about the gates. See, the gates of the Marcas on Hadrian's Wall are a little grander than those of the mm-hmm. forts. So the, the, these are the original gates mm-hmm. were shown to be uh, grander. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's coming back to a symbol of power again. Right, right. These are the gates that people would have had to go through to mm-hmm. come into the empire.
0: That is fascinating. And this whole story is fascinating. So, uh, well, Dr. Brees, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been a wonderful discussion. And uh, to everyone listening, uh, Dr. Brees is the author of one of the standard guides, *Hadrian's Wall, um, and other books in the Roman Frontiers. Check them out wherever books are sold and, of course, uh, online. Um, well, anyway, well, thank you again. Um, it's been thank a you. Real pleasure. Thank you for your stimulating questions. Ah, I do what I can. <laughs> and to everyone listening, uh, thanks so much for tuning in.